coming to you from the studios at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that in this moment, we have microphones in our faces, and you are listening in. This month, we welcome four guests. Calling in, we have Reverend Dr. Elizabeth Conde Frazier. She's the Vice President of Education and Dean of Esperanza College at Eastern University in Pennsylvania. Hello, Dr. Conde. How are you? I'm doing great, and it's wonderful to be a part of this conversation. Thank you so much for the invitation. We are honored to have you with us. Thank you. And then we also have Reverend Alexia Salvatierra, the madrina of the Faith Rooted Unnetwork and also affiliate professor of Fuller. And she is one of the leaders and madrina of Matthew 25. And I know I just completely destroyed that word, so forgive me. <laughs> forgive me. <laughs> Thank you. We are really excited to have you, Alexia. Thank yeah. you for coming. Really appreciate it. Thank you it. for inviting me. And then we also have Lisa Trevino Cummins. She is the founder and president of Urban Strategies. And she also has a lot more under her belt that we'll get to later. But Lisa, thank you so much That's, for making the trek over here. It's a delight. Thank you. And Jessica Cobian. Jessica Cobian is the senior campaign manager of anti-hate and immigration reform at the Center for American Progress. Y'all, we have a full plate here. We really like. We could actually have a baseball team right now. <laughs> yes, let's get started. Excited to be here. Not <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Or maybe softball. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> parties. Party. Party. Much better. We can have a party. Okay. So I've asked these. Four amazing women um, to share with us, and they are all sisters in the struggle, and they are going to be talking with us on Freedom Road Podcast in a candid, vulnerable, honest way about being Latina, about hashtag being Latina. We'd love to hear what you think of this topic as well. Tweet to me, Lisa S. Harper, or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And hey, we see you sharing the podcast with your friends and networks. Thank you so much. Our Freedom Road podcast community is growing every month, and we love that you are not just content to listen in. You're inviting your friends to join you on Freedom Road. Thank you. So... We're in the middle of a summer series exploring the awesomeness within black and brown women and men. And it started with Black Girl Magic last month. A bit of backstory, Black Girl Magic was created by Kashawn Thompson in 2013 in order to celebrate the awesomeness of black womanhood in the face of mountains of stereotypes that are all over the media and literature. And Latinas also have to contend with that. Hello, somebody, right? So, I mean, you know, the Latinas have to contend with the maid or the subservient wife or the spicy Latina, right? Like there's all of these stereotypes that that Latina women, you have to contend with. So I wanted to say, let's celebrate the human, the actual human, rather than actually putting women in a box, right? So let's, let's do that. So I want to start with one question. It's a profound question. It's a question that I asked the black woman last month as well. And I I thought, oh, I really want to know what the Latinas would say. How would the world be different if Latina women ruled the world? 
Well, I'll start by saying that the current administration would look very different. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just start off saying that the White okay. House would look very different. In all seriousness, I think we would tackle the very important issue of gender-based violence. Ah. Um, and this is a major push factor that's driving women and girls to flee their home and seek asylum here um, in the okay. States and across the, the, the world. And actually, a recent report that CAP, that CAP just published noted that in 2016, the countries of El Salvador and Honduras were among the 10 countries that are not currently involved in armed conflict with the highest rates of femicide. Wow. So wait, break down for our listeners. Yep. What is femicide? What does that mean? Femicide is the murdering of girls. So women and girls in the Northern Triangle countries mm -hmm. of El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala face brutal physical and sexual violence at the mm -hmm. hands of gang members. And they often do not have the avenues to pursue justice because of the high level of impunity. Wow. Another recent example is that in 2017, more than nine women and girls were killed every week in El Salvador. So okay. these are the reasons why a lot of women and girls are fleeing. So it's I would definitely tackle this issue with Latinas who are ruling the, 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 the world. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, I think it's a very important issue to lift, especially during this, this week. And to remember that gender-based violence endangers women and girls, driving them to leave their home, seek asylum here, and that we need to better understand the push factors driving migration and put in place more humanitarian practices when responding to asylum seekers. So what I hear you saying is that if Latinas ruled the world, then the issues that concern Latinas would actually be solved. <laughs> like they would actually be taken care of. And in particular, and it wouldn't just be limited to the, the American border. It wouldn't be limited as in, it wouldn't only be concerned with what's happening inside America. But we would actually be concerned. And I think this is really interesting, too, because Latina, Latinx people are international people by mm. definition. They we cross borders, um, in fact, live in the borderlands, as some have said. Right. I really appreciate it. And I like I like the fact that you started us there. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. How about other people? I wanted to throw in just a couple of things yeah. that are connected to that. And one is that. You know, there are many, of course, Latinas that are not undocumented. Yes. You know, there are many of us that actually didn't cross the border. The border crossed us Hello. or going yeah. back generations or our grandparents. In my case, my grandmother crossed the border. But mm. we know somebody who is undocumented. Yeah. And that's the difference, that we know someone that we care about yeah. who is undocumented. I was just thinking of when Jessica was sharing, I was thinking of a particular woman that I know from El Salvador who... You know, the, the Mara, which people refer to as a gang, but is really one of the most powerful international mafias that ever have ever existed. Wow. They were, she had a little tiendita, a little store, and they were, you know, basically charging her the daily renta where they had to, she had to pay them every day. And they kept upping it and upping it until she couldn't pay anymore. And then they threatened to take her eight-year-old daughter. And they said her daughter was very pretty. They could do a lot of things with her. And uh, the woman knew that she couldn't go to the police because the police were actually run by the Mara in the territory that she lived in. And so that's when they ran for the United States. So these are the kinds of wow. families that are being separated at the border. Is this woman taking her daughter here? 
Right. So I think that we know the names and faces of people, and that's. And I also just wanted to add that. I usually, uh, when I talk about the biblical concept of justice, I make sure that people remember that part of that is familia justice, which is just mm-hmm. that justice is how we would treat each other if we really saw each other as brothers and sisters with one heavenly father. Mm, as family. That, that we, would, sorry, we would see each other as family, and that, yeah. that would lead to many different ways mm-hmm. that we would treat each other. Amen. You know, when I first thought about that question, I said, well, it depends. Is that Latina from New York City or L.A.? Ah! <laughs> right, right, <laughs> or Chile right. or Mexico so or true. El Salvador. Okay. Or, you know, so there's oh, so, so much diversity in or wealthy or poor, right? So yeah, there's so much yeah. diversity in our Latino community. I do think that if Latinas ruled the world, you'd see African-Americans, males, whites as part of that, that team. Because uh, I think we would bring others with us. And so inclusive. would not be satisfied that it'd just be Latinas. Oh, wow. Wow, that's deep. How about you, Elizabeth? I think that when I looked at this question, my question to that question was, well, when did we start to rule the world? Because if we're talking about today. That's one thing. But if we're talking about Latinas ruling the world from before. Okay then it would change a lot of what we have seen today. What we see today wouldn't be what we see today. It would be a different world. It would be a world that would give expression to some of what my Latinas colleagues have said just now, but also it would mean that we wouldn't find ourselves in this situation to begin Mm. with. How would the world be different? Part of what we see today, there are Latinas who participate in it because they were formed in it. I don't want us to romanticize Latinas as meaning only the Latinas that are us in the room today. Okay. I think the biggest piece I've worked with are Latinas who were formed differently and have had to do some more creative and critical thinking Mm -hmm. to get them to begin to see other things. So if we had begun a long time ago, I think that colonization would not have taken place. Well, yes. Colonization is the piece that has continued to morph into a lot of what we see today. Mm. Mm. Is what devalues and dehumanizes a person and creates all of the different forms for devaluing and dehumanizing persons in the name of greed. Yeah. So my question is, would Latinas be such that our hearts would not have bent to the greed? Could we say that if we ruled the world that we would have passed that test because if that's the case then the day we would have a world where we would have safety because we wouldn't have to sell anybody's body in any kind of a way and we would have persons where we would have the network of everyone's gift contributions we would create a table we would create a world in which there would be a place for persons to make their contributions Mm. and Mm-hmm. What we would serve, yeah. we would have technology, we would have all of these pieces, but what those pieces would serve would be very different. How we would see the world becoming and what the world would be for would be very different. Wow. We've had to have causes, things that we're working against in order to then create the space, in order to bring the healing that is necessary to the world. Mm-hmm. But if we had been ruling from before, we wouldn't have that. We would have an open space in which we would have this generativity and life taking place. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you so much for that. Thank you. I have, so actually, I wanted to follow up a question for you and actually all of the women here. What's the greatest lesson that you learned about womanhood from your mother or grandmother? You know, it's interesting because I had planned to say something different. Mm. But after what you just said, Elizabeth, mm. I was thinking about how much I take for granted the hospitality that I grew up with, the open yeah. open table, that there was always room for one more at the table. Wow. So when you were talking about a larger social table, I thought about just how automatic, how much that that's the sea that I've always swum in as a fish. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So I was thinking before I was going to talk about their fierceness, but I think they're hospitable even more than they're fierce. How, how about they're, that? Because they are hospitable. They're fierce because they're hospitable. We like that. (laughs) You know, I like to use the word servant leadership. And so I think that describes many of our experiences with those that came before us and whether it's sacrificial most Mm. of the time. That just goes with the territory. And it is very much part of Latino culture that I know. Mm -hmm. So one of the greatest lessons that I learned about my mom was her perseverance in the face of... um, any any challenge. Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom who raised four children and sacrificed her career and her education to raise us. Mm-hmm. So I remember that there was a year when we were going to school in San Diego and living in Tijuana. Mm-hmm. So we, we would, my mom would wake us up every morning in the crack of dawn to cross the, the border and do that long line and you know, have us cross and take us to school every morning. And that I would see her and she was tired and she had health complications that year and she was learning a new language and a new culture, but she never complained. And of course, us as children, we're like, oh, we have to wake up early and it's so tough. My mom was like, nope, I'm going to do this. It's a sacrifice. It's important. So she is the strongest person that I know and that's definitely a lesson that I want to teach to others that my mom has taught me. Thank you. Thank you. How about how about you, Elizabeth? My mother early on realized that living in this country, mm-hmm. as her daughter, I was going to be the first generation born in this country. Mm-hmm. And she left an open pathway for me by telling me that as the first one born here, I would not become the woman that she was or my grandmother, but that instead I'd have to invent the woman that I was going to become. Oh, wow. And what she left me was a legacy of understanding how to speak to God mm-hmm. and how to allow God to speak to me. And she said, don't let anybody place their hand on you. In other words, not so much a physical hand, uh-huh. but it was... When someone places their hand on you, que te ponga las manos encima, that means that that person would not coerce me into anything, would not prescribe what my destiny would be. Yeah. But that instead, I would be shaped by the God that had created me. Created me knowing that I would be living here as a pioneer woman Mm -hmm. and would be the one to say what would be my pathway. Mm -hmm. So she left it totally open, telling me that all I would have to do was not fear. Mm. That God would call me into doing things that I had not seen anyone else do. 
mm-hmm. that no one would say I was permitted to do, but that in spite of that, if God said I was going to do it, then believe God and keep on moving. Mm-hmm. Wow. That allowed me to see beyond barriers and other things that were before me. It allowed me to see God and to Mm -hmm. um, look for God in understanding how I should walk. So I hear two things in that, Elizabeth. I hear hear one, it's funny because your mom was a theologian. (laughs) <laughs> because what she when she's saying don't let anybody put their hands on you as in don't let anybody control who you are or your path in life it seems to me what she was saying is don't let anybody have dominion over you yeah. um, you but, know but be a child of God know that you're a child of God right. right because God is the only one who actually has dominion yeah. over yeah. over us right not no man yeah. no uh, ethnic group or race is created to have that dominion over you and that's a theological statement that's a declaration mm-hmm. yep. you know hats off to your mom you know i wonder lisa the four of us have similar perspectives on what our mothers and grandmothers have instilled in us mm-hmm. and is that correlated with the fact that we're leaders ah. and is that innate latina Or is that, as a result, correlated with the fact that we're all Latino leaders? Yeah, what do you think? Well, I have to say that my sisters aren't leaders in the same way that that I am. But Uh they are leaders in their own way. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. That's interesting because for for me, it was also so much part, even though it was the generation of my grandparents who were the immigrants, it so much formed us, the sort of immigrant story that there are new possibilities in this country and I gotta, you know, grab them. Uh It's like, don't be, don't sit down, keep moving, keep working. You know, I think that that's a larger immigrant story uh-huh. that affects a lot of us, but certainly not all of us. Right? But see, but this is really interesting because Jessica starts with the reality of, I mean, really the I, I, what I imagine to be the 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 product, the outcome of the hard machismo that is also in the culture that can really crush a, a woman's spirit, quite honestly, or stifle that. So it is kind of amazing that we are sitting with four women who were told by their mothers and their grandmothers, be strong, rise, don't let anybody control your destiny or you know, exercise dominion over you. Is this more, just like you were saying late, Lisa, is this more of a, maybe even a generational thing or... I'm not. I wonder if it sure has to, to put do it. with adversity. Okay. And so the the other common element is adversity. And and if you think about the heroes of our country, huh. they've come through adversity. Yeah. You know, I've heard the saying that to, for a, a kite to fly high, there has to be the resistance of wind. Yeah. And so I wonder. You know, throwing that element, and I also want to give credit to the guys in the picture, my father and grandfather, who were as supportive mm-hmm. and right there alongside but yeah so I don't know if that has to do with adversity that you persevere you develop resilient qualities that allow you to go forth wow so I definitely agree with with everyone here and also to follow up to what Lisa mentioned I think it's also because of that adversity and that machismo that they had to go through and that we still have to go through that it you know we have to be stronger we have to develop Uh, that muscle and say uh you know if we don't know when this is going to end, but we have to be prepared at all times to be strong women. My mother actually, at one point, I think when I was in high school, 
She called it warrior training. Ooh, <laughs> go mom! You know, she wow. said everything will be harder for you, and you have to be harder. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. You know, but I think, you know, that there's actually... My father and grandfather were not as supportive, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think that I really learned watching my mother. I learned the art of fishing. Mm-hmm. You know, when Jesus says to, to Pedro, to Peter, that he has to become a fisher of human beings, you learn when you're in a situation where someone has more power and they're not always on your side for whatever reason. Uh-huh. You know, my I'm, my father was very damaged in his own way, right? Yeah. But you learn when to push and when to wait. Like, you don't pull the line hard all the time when you're fishing or you lose the fish. Yeah. And that kind of learning when to be a servant and when to be strong, you know, that that dance is something that I watched my mother do. I have Mm -hmm. watched you. I have. I I mean, it's like a tango, right? Uh It's like a tango. (laughs) Well, so that served you, that has served you well in your your calling. Yeah. So these are our stories. You are listening to the Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring the stories to you from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Okay, everybody, imagine this. Imagine one bus... 40 women, three days, multiple encounters with the diverse stories of our foremothers' struggles to attain, protect, and maintain the right to vote. We're going to travel from Seneca Falls to New York City to Atlantic City and then D.C. And then we're going to spend one full day on Capitol Hill talking to our legislators about the need to protect women's right to vote. The Ruby Woo Pilgrimage is happening again this year, November 4 through 8 on Freedom Road. Space is limited and registration is closing soon. So apply today at freedomroad.us. when you were coming up as a theologian, the field of theology was dominated by white men, right? And so, in fact, I'm not even sure it's not still dominated by white men. Few Latinos actually had the opportunity or or capacity to break through. And when they did, they were men. So how in the world did you find the courage to push forward into this male-dominated field? Well, let's talk about how we come in contact with those male white voices so you have theological education and uh-huh. you know to the people that you have to read etc but i learned early on in my life that there was the reality of what you read in a book in a text and that you learn to regurgitate it on a test so that you could get your a mm-hmm. but there's also the reality of where your thought goes when you're doing the reading, the questions that you have of it, the realities that you know are not represented. And I always kept two sets of notes. (laughs) So when I went to theological education, that's part of what I did as well, is that you you had to read all these folks, but you kept your own set of notes, which were the voices of those who were not these white men. And they were 
the questions that this, these theologies did not respond to or even begin to look at, and those were the sets of notes that, for me, were the treasure, and I wrote out of those pieces. Wow. And slowly, <laughs> what began to happen, so a little bit of quick history, if I may, yeah. uh, what takes place is that in the world of the Academy of Religion, this is where these voices make themselves known, and you know, this is how you, you have to make yourself known there so that you can get published, and da-da-da-da-da. Mm -hmm. So, the first voice that comes forth is a Catholic woman. She is a religious woman. Later on, she moves in a different direction in her life and calling, but this is where she starts. And this is important because this is also about access to theological education. If you're going to be a voice in this country, you have to have access to becoming a voice, and especially in the academy. So that means that you have to have education. Yeah. To have education at that level, you have to have some money or someone who invests in you mm -hmm. so that you can get to that level. Mm -hmm. And so Latina women who were religious were the ones who had access to that because their orders would pay for their education. Mm -hmm. Oh, Protestant women didn't have that, right? right. We're not a part yeah, of orders, right. and that's we true. sort of had to do it a pulmón. We had to, you know, find our own ways to do that. And it's not until we have the Fund for Theological Education oh. and later um, the Hispanic Theological Initiative that we have some type of scholarships and so forth to begin to move the voices of women and to go forth. So, you know, you need an infrastructure to even be in the arena where a voice is a voice. Okay. Um, wow. But it's not so much courage as it is passion and love. Mm. Our voices as Latina theologians, whether or not it's in the academy, begins in the church. We are the ones who make decisions that are theological. Uh, you mentioned before that you saw my mother as a theologian. Well, you know, that kind of thinking happens in Bible school, happens in the daily life as we're talking to one another, trying to resolve and trying to find alternatives of hope. Mm, and yeah. that's where women do theology. That's mm. where we still do theology. And it mm. doesn't take courage. It just takes a sense of wanting to see life and thriving and joy take place. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> uh, I'm listening to Elizabeth. I'm taking a, a class and I have very limited knowledge on the whole theological academy. Mm -hmm. But I think probably the two Latino voices in theology are in this conversation. Yeah, with actually, Alexia and it's Elizabeth. true. It's true. And so, and, I, and there's not that many mm. that I know of, even Latino, mm -hmm. that have been published. And, and interestingly, mm -hmm. said the I would say when I'm taking a class on race and theology, well, if there's a person of color, they're African-American. And I'm learning greatly from that, but mm -hmm. there's not a Latino voice generally. I was honestly, so I was realizing this when we did our Ruby Woo pilgrimage last year. Alexia was on our advisory council for that. And I, I emailed or called or something and said, Alexia, help me out. We're trying to find ways to tell the Latina story. Can you, can you recommend films? Can you write? And they were all the films that we know, mm -hmm. but there weren't really that many that focused on historical figures, the, the madrinas, you mm -hmm. know, of the Latina struggle for justice and, and civil right. rights. 
Right. So I know now there's Dolores Huerta. Ha! Uh-huh. She has her own film. Amazing. <laughs> but and, there's others. And, and I'm sure if you got a list, we can come up with lists. Are they published? No. That's Is there the a thing. video on them? No. That's the but thing. But they're there. They were the stalwarts of our churches. They're there, but we haven't told their stories. Right. Yeah, I do want to say that there are some others. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the superstars here. Wrote actually a really wonderful book co-wrote called Latina Evangelicas. And it's, I really recommend it. And there's a couple of other leading Latina theologians. In there. Yes. But, you know, I'm in the process, actually, of finally of getting my doctorate. Yes, I did she not, is. I did not get it for many years. I, I've taught without it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm getting it studying our pastors, you know, studying the pastors who graduate from Centro Latino and, and the process that they go through to to learn how to really implement Mission Integral, you know, a holistic mm-hmm. mission. Mm-hmm. But I but I want to say that the process of getting my doctorate is really, really hard. I feel like it's really not designed for me. Mm-hmm. Like the processes are not designed for me mm-hmm. and that they also hit all my buttons. Like I had to write a book also earlier in my life. I wrote a book. And when I was writing the book, I had all these voices that came to me. You know, they were echoes of voices that I had heard all my life mm-hmm. that made me feel like, well, who am I? You know, quien soy yo? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm who am I? Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not a person who writes books. Right. Wow. And so. Because the, you're Latina. Yeah, I mean, and because man. I come from the wrong side of the tracks. Uh-huh. And, you know, so all of, for all of these reasons, it wow. um, was all those voices. But in the process of trying to get my doctorate, those voices have been explicit, not just implicit. Like, people have said things to me that really make it hard to like keep what? going. Can you give us, like, one example? Sure. I, when I turned no in... No names the, needed, but yeah. The first installment, <laughs> the first yeah. uh, installment of my papers, you know, in the program that I'm in, I didn't know anything about the format. Format in, in graduate, in doctoral work is critically important. And I had not been in school for 32 years. Right. And I think we used a different format 32 years ago, although I don't remember. Oh. And so I didn't know which format I was supposed to use. Oh. I was writing as if I was writing a book. And my doctoral supervisor wrote on it, where I'm ashamed of you. <gasps> That's a very strong, powerful words oh for our culture. Gosh. And I really wanted to run away. Sure. Of course. And I'm a pretty strong person, I would think. But oh I, but that just hit every button. Like, who do I think I am and why do I think I can do this? So, <laughs> Well, that person needs to be ashamed of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe so. Oh yeah, we'll get, his, we'll get the name later. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but oh uh, but I just want to say that, you know, it is... That higher education, I, I, I've learned, is really a guild, and it's, it's like I said, when I went to get my doctorate, I said, oh, I guess it's time for me to try to get to be documented. You know, we talk about being undocumented, undocumented, <laughs> and it's time for me to get me documented, okay. That's right. But it's really hard. It's as hard, it's not, I wouldn't say it as, it's as hard as the immigration system, that's worse, but it is really hard. Wow. Okay, mm-hmm. Elizabeth, you were going to say something? Yes, Alexia is uh, raising some really important pieces. You know, the very mm-hmm. first woman who wrote as a Latina and in Latina theology was Maria Isasi Diaz. She's a Catholic woman. Oh. She was a woman religious. And she wrote, and not only was it the fact that she's the first voice, but it's the methodology that she used to talk about how it is that you get at what women are talking about. And she used a method whereby she and Yolanda Tarango were talking and interviewing other women, uh, women in and outside of the of the Latina Catholic Church, and they were talk, they took these women's voices, used the women's voices as they were, 
and then did a summary translating into the language of the guild, as Alexa has pointed out. But it is a difficult process. It takes a lot to come into the circle where you become documented, as Alexia, you know, to, to continue the, the conversation with my mm-hmm. sister here, mm-hmm. to become documented in that sense. Um, mm-hmm. It's quite a process to learn to write. The HTI had had to teach us, had people come in and teach us how to write. And I had a woman who, she's a white feminist woman, and she's supposed to come in and, and help us to write. We were writing our dissertations, and she's supposed to help us out. And the first woman that she was working with, before she worked with me, she came out of the room crying and she's like, forget it, I'm never going to get through this. Mm. And then my, you know, my New Yorican self said, oh, hell no, she's not going to make me cry. You're New Yorican. I love that. That's true. It's a very specific thing. (laughs) I walked into the room and she started to sort of, you know, just really attack me and say, I don't know how the hell you could call this writing and blah, blah, blah. And I said, stop right there, girl. And I said, tell me about your journey of education. And she talked to me about how even her grandmother had gone, you know, to Harvard and all of this. And I said, okay, so that's your journey. I want you to listen to mine. Mm -hmm. When she heard my journey of education in this country, she just didn't know where to put herself. And she said, well, then how are you even here? And I said, that's the point. You're supposed to be here to empower me because how am I even here? And I said, I expect that you're going to do X and Y and Z. And I defined for her how she needed to work with me. <laughs> I love Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. You, know, I, I, I you really that. internalized that. You internalized the call of your mother to exercise dominion. Yeah. Because in that moment, you took back dominion. That's what you did. I love yeah, that. Yeah, you have to. You have to in this world, right? But, you know, that doesn't mean that every moment that we have is like that. So we have to do this together. Hmm. We have to do this together. One hmm. woman has to encourage another. One woman has to... I had women who didn't know what I was doing. And they would say, I, Yo no sé lo que tú haces. I don't know what you're doing, but know that I'm praying for you. Well, you know, those prayers meant a lot. <laughs> Finding your voice enough to write is a heck of a lot. Yeah. Going through the process of this doctoral program, you lose your voice, actually. Uh, and you have to refine your voice. I'll tell you very quickly. Wow. I had this point at which I knew that there's this one chapter that wasn't going to go through mm-hmm. because I couldn't find my voice. This was a chapter where I had to speak from me, from my place, and I couldn't find it. So I knew that chapter was going to come back to me. And when it did, I said, okay, that's it. I can't. I can't find it. I don't know what's wrong. So I'm just going to leave it here. I don't know what's going to happen. Mm. And I just started, you know, to enter into a process of prayer and so forth and sort of leave it alone Mm -hmm. and I was rummaging through stuff you know books and notes and whatnot and I found these notes and I read this stuff and I said wow this is exactly how I feel this is great where did this come from and when I looked it was something I had written before I started the (laughs) process wow wow I didn't. My voice was that strong mm-hmm. and that defined before I started this process. Mm-hmm. And so I started to trace how I had lost my voice in the process so that I could then find it again. You know, move back to that wonderful piece I had written before entering. So we have these great voices, but it's like Alexia has said, the process itself can really beat you up and beat your voice out of you. Do you have historical figures that give you strength when you think of them? Because I know for myself, like I go back, uh, whenever I get in those places, I've been in those, you know, those places where you either feel like 
somebody is either trying to colonize you or you're challenged, you're not really sure you're going to make it, like, oh, God, I'm not sure I can make it through this this particular challenge. And I think back, literally, I think back Harriet Tubman. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I really do. I think back Sojourner Truth. I mean, I literally call them forth. We have those stories. We just finished saying that we don't have, we don't our- have them. So you don't have So my stories. grandmother, I go back to my grandmother. Oh. Right. right. Those are our stories. So even like Frida, like Frida Kahlo, like or, or um 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 um, yeah. that's the point, we're right? Crea- yeah. So oh, we're creating wow. them now. Yeah. So, so to me, I think about the moments when oh. I was doing community organizing in the Coachella Valley with farm workers in California, and there was this amazing lady, Doña Chela, that was her <laughs> her her name, and she was a cancer s- survivor. And she was very passionate about health justice and immigration justice. She was undocumented, dealing with cancer. She was organizing farm workers. So to this day, I think back, whenever I have an issue that I I think is a big issue, what would Doña Chela do? Ah. You know, it's so interesting to hear you say that because I have Doña Otilia, Uh who Uh when I was 20 years old, like the first program that I ever organized was with farm workers. And she, I thought she was very old. She was, I think, 35 at the time. (laughs) And uh, she had 13 children and they lived in one room. Uh But she was just an amazing leader. You know, I, I, I walked on there as a college student saying, how can we help you? And she said, do you know, do you really want to work? I was like, yes. She said, okay, vamanos, you know, let's work. (laughs) So, you know, it was, uh, but she was, I think about, see, I think about that. I think about my my grandmother. I think about Doña Otilia. I think about Dolores Huerta, who I have the pleasure of knowing. Yeah, they're the women we have internalized. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. But most people don't know, you know, Doña. Doña Chela. Chela. Doña Otilia. Every every family has a Chela, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I had the opportunity to go through the Museum of National Portraits uh, last year, and I hadn't done that before. And I was just struck at the number of profound stories and how very few of them were Latinos. Mm -hmm. And that happened simultaneously to a presentation I was giving at UPenn with Latino and Latina students. And, yeah, I gave some remarks along with a few other Hispanics, and they came with tears saying, we haven't had any heroes and heroines, and you're them. And I was, Mm. it was so humbling, but disappointing at the same time. And so... I resolve from that point that anytime I have an opportunity to name a building or name a program, I'm going to put somebody's name on that because we do have heroes and heroines, but we don't know their stories. Wow. That is really like, that just really hit me. It hit me hard because from the time I was little, like literally in the 70s, I remember when I was probably about six years old, I watched a film about Harriet Tubman. I was talking about it on Black Girl Magic, you know, um, episode podcast that it's that movie that taught me a little bit about who we are but to know that those heroes heroines they're all right y'all so we now we need to put it together a production company (laughs) and we need to begin to tell these stories and i I think it also makes it so much more important 
and by the way, you know, Dolores Huerta did not pay me for this, <laughs> but it's so much, it's, it's so much more important than that there is actually a film about her right now. And, you know, the reality that actually she was organizing before Cesar, right? Like this is that she wasn't just his helper. She actually was like the lead organizer mm-hmm. for a while there. And then they, they began you to know, collaborate. The, uh, the Pew, I guess it was the Pew Foundation. They issued, a, they uh, commissioned a study and it was, I guess, about five, six years ago. And they asked Latino community, who are your heroes and heroines? And there was the top vote getters had like 4% of the population. So there were there was no one obvious. Wow. And so we went back and said, you know what? But it, it is our mothers. It is our grandmothers. Yeah. It is us. The Donas. All the so, Donas. All the Donas. Yeah. So we have an opportunity Hold to on. influence. We'll call Elizabeth. our production company the Donas. There you go. Ah! That. Elizabeth, you were gonna you were gonna say something? It's all of the mentoras, right? Yeah. They're, they're the ones who have mentored us. They're the ones that have taken us under their wings. So if we all started thinking about who our mentoras are, mm. uh, Dolores Huertas taught her brother. She inspired him and she taught him. You know, mm-hmm. it, it would create if we put these stories together, it would create an entirely different picture of what is a shiro. It would create a different picture. It would be a different paradigm because how we have done it is different. And it wouldn't fit the usual way of telling a story. You, you have to tell the story of a community to tell the story of a mentora. Yeah. Amen. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. Have you ever had like those burning questions rise to the surface after really being motivated to do justice, but you're not really quite sure how? Well, we have a series of three webinars coming up at the end of July that you can check out on Freedom Road that'll help you to do exactly that. The first one is called How to Prioritize Your Public Witness When It Feels Like the Sky is Falling. Hello, somebody. I know that we actually know how that feels right now. And then the second one is How to Spot Check Our Implicit Bias. And the third is Systems Thinking 101, How to Think Systemically. So July 24, 25, and 26, each day at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, we will will be going deep into each of these subjects for one hour. And then these webinars will actually be available on our website at freedomroad.us. Make sure you join the conversation. Look out for registration links on Twitter at Freedom Road Us and on Facebook at freedomroad.us. Okay, so got that? Twitter, Freedom Road Us, Facebook, freedomroad.us. That's where you can find out where you can actually register or just come to our website at freedomroad.us. VP of B of A, Bank of America. What? <laughs> Are you kidding me? What? And then also the White House. What? 
Like, this is who you are. This is what you've done in this world. You have literally helped to shape the way power structures actually can do good in the world. Mm -hmm. And you started doing this in the 80s. Is that right? Like in the 80s and with B of A and then and then the Bush 43 White House. So you've worked at two power centers, two centers of power in, in the world. And in both cases, you leveraged your influence to help empower our communities, black and brown. So what did you learn? about how power works while you were there. So first of all, I'm thankful for those opportunities. I was at Bank of America for 12 years and so much of what I've learned professionally and how to approach things have been from that time. I learned how to find win-win situations, Mm. to find ways that everyone at the table can get a win. Mm-hmm. That may not be a hundred percent win what everyone would like, but mm-hmm. but I think I have found myself at, I found myself at tables where you had a community organization on one side who was livid with the bank for good reason, yeah, and then I had p- the bankers on the other side who were fearful of the community for good reason, for good reason, and so to be able to break through that and mm-hmm. find out areas of common interest, common concerns, and then to build from there mm-hmm. has served me well as I've gone about and went to the White House and then done other things um, the last 15 years in urban strategies. Mm-hmm. So it's it has been an amazing experience. It's nothing that I would have planned. Nothing. Wow. wow. I thought I was going to be a, well, I was going to be in ministry, but in my tradition, being in ministry meant to be a pastor's wife, and I didn't see any pastor that was interesting. So <laughs> I had to figure out another plan, and God had another plan. That's hilarious. And it was, it's been an amazing ride. So you were in ministry as the v, senior VP of B of A. That's exactly. Hilarious. You know, That's there, awesome. I, yes, wow, I am in ministry and I'm getting paid. Yeah. Yeah, from like, a bank. Like really paid. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think that God gave me favor in, in all of those circles, and mm. I think the bank would say, I did a good job. Mm-hmm. I did very well for the bank's interest, but I was able to do that in a way that really allowed the community to win. That served the community's mm-hmm. interest, too. Yeah. So what is it that but most of us don't know about how to move power to do justice that we need to know? It's probably what we know, but we don't practice, and that's listen. Ah, it's the listening. Listening and understanding and trying to, you know, all of us, whatever political stripes or uh, wherever we come from, there's a desire to be heard and understood. Mm. And so I think if we can start there, that brings about the humanity that you were talking about earlier and brings us, I think, to a common table, common common place. Oh, that's so good. Which, you know, social media and all that doesn't really help doesn't really help engage in the conversations to come to the same table. But That's exactly right. That is exactly right. So, Jessica, I want to ask you, how do Latinas in the millennial generation engage the world differently than Latina women in generations that came before? Yeah, I love this question. So, millennial Latinas are actually engaging in the workforce in larger numbers than mm. before, mm-hmm. right? And according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics, Hispanic women share women's share of the labor force has nearly doubled over the last twenty years, and. In 2024, Hispanic women are projected to account for 18% of the labor force and 8% of the total labor force. However, Mm -hmm. we are still experiencing some of the largest gender wage gaps among all women. 
earning less than the average white, black, and Asian female. Really? Yep. Mm -hmm. So Latinas working full-time year-round are paid only 54 cents every dollar paid to their non-white Hispanic male counterpart. And it's even more astonishing that this wage gap has persisted for over 30 years. So Latinas are now experiencing a very low pay and very worse labor market outcomes Mm -hmm. um, overall. And really, these disadvantages are putting a drag in our economy overall. So so it's funny, Sakina Hamlin, who is with the Center for Responsible Lending, was on in the Black Girl Magic broadcast. And she was talking about how if we just had pay equity, like if just pay equity alone, we would actually have you know, enough money to be able to put away money. All of our family's needs would be met. We don't need, we wouldn't need any kind of more safety nets. Just pay equity alone would make the difference. And I'll just add that when Latinas are thriving academically and professionally, our whole economy benefits. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we really need to share with politicians and economists Mm -hmm. that it's important to consider the challenges that Latinas are facing now so our economy can thrive. That's great. Alexia, you were going to jump in? Yeah, I was just going to jump in because I do quite a bit of speaking and training around the country in faith-rooted organizing, Mm -hmm. which is a model that we worked on and developed. And when I do that, I feel like it's part of promoting the model, model of bringing people together to create systemic change in a way that is really guided and shaped by our faith. It's part of the model that I don't charge a fee, that instead I say to organizations, pay me what God tells you to pay me. I want them to think about it. I want them to pray about it. But a few years ago, I just as an experiment, I said to one institution, pay me what God would tell you to pay a white man. And they gave me double of what they were going to give me. Wow. (laughs) And I was just, I was in shock because these were organizations within the Christian world. So, you know, I can have a little bit of naivete about that. And uh, and (laughs) since then, I just sort of decide which way I'm going to do it. And, (laughs) And seriously, every time I, every time I say, pay me what, you know, God tells you to pay me. I get one kind of fee, and if I add that phrase, it doubles it. It's just, it's wow. just painful. <laughs> wow. I mean, honestly, I'm kind of speechless. How, we're, uh, I mean, that's wow. Okay. Anybody else want to say anything? Because I'm really, I'm speechless. I don't well, really you know. On that, that point, <laughs> I used to. I've always struggled with the issue of payment and that sort of thing for services and and so one time I said you know let's make it easy let's say one per, the normal consultant fee for example is one percent of salary so I said okay one percent not of what I would get but one percent of your pastor's salary so if he's making ten twenty thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. you know you figure out the math well interestingly when I went to bigger churches they didn't want to go that way ah. <laughs> well yeah 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 because yeah. they want to they want to retain more of it for themselves mm-hmm. which is so oh I just wish we're more generous well I wish it wasn't such a colonized society maybe that's really what it is it's a society that exists in order to in order to uh, to prop up and to make sure to protect and maintain the status of of white maleness so Elizabeth well Lisa I'll just let me just push back a little bit my experience has been and it's not just white males Ah, so it's not well, but wait. So, so go on, say that. So, say that. yeah. So, the example I can give you is not white males; they were mm-hmm. men of color. So, actually, it's really funny because 
Next month, well, uh-huh. this is going to be dropping on July 1st. Next month, we're going to have one on black men's magic. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's going to be a conversation with Reggie Williams. And, and we, we already taped it. So he talks about in that, I'm just going to forecast yeah. you for you in that, but he talks about the reality that there's a white supremacy is not something that only lives in white people. It's a reality that we have all been soaking in for mm-hmm. 400, 500 hundred years so it's actually internalized in us and you see it you see the systems the same plantation systems that existed on the mm-hmm. plantation you see in our churches you see in our you know in our businesses and the way that we think that the world is supposed to be led so it's in some ways now having had that conversation it's not surprising to hear that it's in our own men it's right. in our own communities so I, I think of the phrase dr soon chan ra says um, western culture captivity Yes, yes, that's right. Or one of the pastors that I've been studying talks about how we need to be in recovery from the addiction to the intoxication of colonialism. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, so I have another question. Mm -hmm. This one is for Elizabeth. Elizabeth, when I heard you speak at the Voices Conference, you talked about the power of our voices. You talked about the need to come with attitude. I just love that. I mean, to this day, I swear, I really literally think of that. Like, in fact, you said attitude is voice. You know, our voice is attitude. I mean, so can you break that down for us a little bit for our listeners? So attitude is agency is what I said. Attitude is agency. That's it. So can you help us? Let's tell, tell us well, about the Mexican-Americans in the room. I want to hear Puerto Rican talk about this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there is a difference. And I love I love it. So it's the attitude that I use to push back when the woman started going into, you know, things about my writing. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You need attitude because what happens is if I was doing this, you know, in the room with you, I'd have one of us on all fours on the floor and I'd have, you know, the rest of us try to sit on her. Oh, OK. And if you were going to try to get up from there and you kept feeling us pushing you down, pushing you down, but you really wanted to get up. You had a dream. You wanted to get up from that place. You didn't want to be in, you know, where you are right now. You'd have to find your anger. Mm, yeah. Uh, anger is absolutely necessary to work on our justice piece. Uh, it's a gift from God. It's just that you have to know how to channel your anger. And listening has to be a part of why you are angry. You, you, you are listening because you're angry. Mm-hmm. And you have to hear other perspectives in order to make sense of some of the anger that you're feeling for the things that are taking place. Oh, that's good. Because you want to balance it. But if everyone was sitting on you, Mm -hmm. the force that you would have to use to get up from there, you'd find your attitude real fast. And you would use it in order to be able to get up. Yeah. So I think I could safely say that I'm probably the oldest person in this group <laughs> and wait so you didn't you didn't see this but Alexia went I don't know about that <laughs> she goes, Alexia I am a little older than you. oh there you go there you go okay <laughs> but here's the thing to get up from where we are and you know I can't pass for white mm-hmm. you immediately know that I am you know something other than white mm-hmm. it depends on the day and how much it's raining you know my hair could be all viva Africa and you would think that I'm you know that I'm uh, African-American. So people really, you know, look at you differently. And you have to find your attitude to continue to move. Mm. Your attitude is what keeps your dream before you. Your attitude is what keeps your mentoras inside of you, speaking to you and moving forward. Mm. Your attitude is your body, is your thinking, is your speaking, is everything 
about who you are in that room. Mm-hmm. Your, your attitude says, no, I'm not like you. Yes, I am different. And that's exactly why you need and want me in this room, even when you don't think that you need and want me mm-hmm. in this room. Um, and I'm going to be here just the same. A to the men. So, um, you know, it's, it's your attitude that says you, you're going to have to pay me more than what you thought. Mm. It's your attitude what makes you atreverte, to dare to. Yes. To dare to, to say what you really are thinking, to take what is common sense to you, but that you know other people have never heard and they're going to think is really radical. Mm. And to say it and to, to break it down for others to be able to hear it. So attitude is agency. When I have students here who come into my office and they have all kinds of attitude, I love it. (laughs) I can work with attitude. It's when I have the students who are walking around and their heads are down that I worry. Uh That student has lost their attitude, has lost their voice, they're depressed. The trauma in their life has been beating really, really hard on their life. Mm. And so that's when I have to use a different way of empowerment for them. Hmm. People don't like attitude because they don't know what to do with attitude. Yeah. But that's exactly why we use attitude. It's because it catches people off guard. They don't always know what to do with it. And it gives us the space to do what we need to do in this space, hmm. to own it. Yeah. Amen. Thank you so much. Alexia, I want to turn to you and I want to ask, what is the biggest myth about Latinas that you have to work against in order to thrive? What is the biggest myth that causes you to have to... You actually talk about ganas <laughs> as your attitude. That's how you how you phrase it. Like Right. What, it's what? a little different okay, in, okay. in the Mexican universe than the uh-huh. Caribe. But I think that, you know, when you asked that question, Lisa, when you sent it, I was thinking about how there's the general barriers and then there's the barriers with our own men, yeah. you know, in our community. Yeah. And they're, they're relatively distinct. Mm-hmm. It's not the same barriers okay. that I face. In the general community, I think I, think I get patronized a lot. Mm-hmm. I think people are nice to me and they pat me on the head metaphorically that they, mm. you know, <laughs> yeah. that you become sort of this exotic flower in their minds, mm-hmm. right? That they like to have around, but they wouldn't really take you seriously as a leader, that they would really see you as, mm. yeah, that they just wouldn't think you had the the capacity to lead, whatever that means. You know, that Um, reminds me of Willie James. Willie James mm -hmm. Jennings, sorry, um, talks about, we were, again, forecasting towards the next one, the black male magic one. We were talking about Willie James Jennings has this theory about the imagination of the white man Mm -hmm. and the gaze, the white male gaze, and how the world is really shaped through the lens of the white male gaze, and the white male sees black men as either a pet or threat. But it's striking to me that what I hear you saying is that you experience that gaze on you as a pet, Hmm. you know, and maybe maybe we are even as as women leaders who are very powerful operating, trying not to be a threat. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's the dark side of of the beauty that is servant leadership mm-hmm. <laughs> is that I get seen as a, as a good servant. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> right. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, wow. and then of course I, I do practice Aikido in that sense, you know, that I do end up quite often with, 
with men that I don't threaten, waking up to the fact that I've very sneakily moved into a position of power, <laughs> and that I've and that they have to acknowledge that I'm doing it well, and, and that happens to me regularly, actually. Wow. But I, I was thinking about our own men, and I, I was at a table that I was invited to be at by one of our our leaders in our community, and another one of our leaders in our community who really was deeply offended that I was a woman pastor. He was he was just offended by that truth. Wow. And so he wouldn't talk to me. Like I would address him and he would not respond. Hmm. But if I said something that was worth hearing, he would say something about it to the man who had invited me. <laughs> and then the man who had invited me, because he is really a good man and very woke, would turn to me and then I would say back to him what I thought and then he would say literally say it back to the other person. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but that went on for a while until I organized a, a big event that was very important for the man who didn't believe that I should be a pastor and he he was so impressed by the event and this is what I do love about our community is there's a sort of a willingness to be moved by our hearts and our experiences that I really appreciate mm-hmm. is that we had this big event and afterwards for the first time he addressed me, he addressed me as hermana, which is sister. So that was really powerful for me, but I had to spend a long time, literally. And I don't think Elizabeth would have done it. We're a different culture, you know. <laughs> she, would, she would not have allowed that, but I did convert him in the end. Um, but but I wouldn't, I'm not sure that that he would see me as a pet. I don't think, I don't, or exotic flower. I mean, he did, it was none of that. I, I don't yeah. know that I have the words to describe what it was. It's a different thing. It's a different phenomena, right? But it's definitely the barriers are sometimes more painful mm-hmm. in, in our own community mm-hmm. for me than they are in the general world. It's, mm-hmm. it's very. He didn't know what to do with you either because you were in a category that didn't exist for him. That's how come he, he sort of had to render that invisible. You you that was invisible. Ooh. Wow. Well, and, and it just it highlights like the complicated situation we're in. You have the issues of gender. You have the issues of race. Mm-hmm. You have the issues of New York or L.A., Mexican or Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. And then, you, you know, in all of that, you know, race, I talked to my sister-in-law from Colombia. Well, there's racism there. The lighter you are, the more Hello. preferred you are. In Africa, my friends in Zambia, the lighter you are, the the more favorable wow. you're looked upon. And right? it's because it's right. We've been formed by the racial constructs of colonization. Yeah. I mean, they're still so deeply in us. Yeah. It's really sad. In fact, you know, just recently I was at a Latino gathering, and and at this gathering there were so many people who identified as now I, I this is not this is not a partisan broadcast but I'm a Democrat. It's the very first book I wrote. I said I came out of the closet. I'm a Democrat. So that's like that's out. We already know yeah, that. Nothing new. Um, and and I believe that we have to talk about politics, not partisanship, but politics, because politics at the heart of it is simply the conversation that we have that determines how the polis lives together. Right. So we're in this gathering, and there's a lot of Latino people who strongly identify as GOP, as Republican in today's world. And I think that the thing that struck me, I was talking with somebody else about this, an African-American woman, and her first response, I'm not really sure this is it, and I'd love to get your input, was that, well, some Latinas actually get to be white. Hmm. Or they, they actually live their lives and think like a white person because they actually do get to be white. 
You are listening to the Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring the stories to you from the front lines of the struggle for justice. is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment, we find ourselves in full of protests, anger, and activist momentum. Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. that we have this immigration conversation going on and we are not actually talking about race like we don't really talk about race we talk about it as an immigration problem so you know i want to say that the new regulations that have existed since our current administration came in take away the prioritization of enforcement which we worked very hard for Mm -hmm. and instead make anybody who's committed any kind of crime on the same level if the crime that the crime in quotations it's not actually a crime but the crime that they've committed is to cross the border without proper documentation or if they've committed a felony it's all the same but it goes farther than that Mm -hmm. it says that the agents on the ground can pick up someone for what is called a chargeable offense in other words, they don't actually have to have been accused and convicted of a crime. The agent on the ground just has to think that they might have committed a chargeable offense. And anybody who's around at the time that they decide to ask for their papers and they don't have papers on them becomes what's called collateral damage. Mm-hmm. Now, when you kind of understand the racial component of this is when you realize that we're now at about half of the folks who are here undocumented overstayed visas. They didn't cross a border. And mm-hmm. I read the other day that the country with the highest percentage of people who have overstayed visas is Canada. Whoa! But there aren't there aren't there aren't people walking around in white communities thinking that people white people have committed a chargeable offense. So they might deep. actually be Canadians mm-hmm. overstaying their visa. Oh my god. So that that's to me really reveals very clearly yes. the racial component. People were yelling build a wall. They weren't yelling get rid of the people overstayed visas. You know, there was like, that's So right. that's that's just a really powerful and they're but they're equally illegal if you make all quote unquote mm-hmm. crimes equal. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, and just, and yeah. just to add Absolutely. The issue of immigration has always been about race, right? This administration, for example, is dehumanizing immigrants at astonishing levels Mm -hmm. since the very beginning. And I mean, Mm -hmm. their whole constellation of policies are designed to shut Latinos out. That's the bottom line. That's what they want. They want a white society. Exactly. By increasing deportations, by increasing worksite rates, by efforts to purge voters from the polls, 
they're reshaping the U.S. demographics. That's it. And pushing Latinos out. So we need to call it by what it is. Yeah, and it's by calling us animals and calling us rapists and calling us all these different names. This issue has always been about race, and it's their goal is to paint the picture of Latinos as less than humans, as animals. Mm -hmm. And in this way, they will win the narrative and they will win support for the hateful policies. So their goal is to redefine the country and change our demographics permanently. What do we do about that? Because you are actually the person in charge of the immigration campaign here yep, at CAP. And I know that, Alexia, you are also working on Matthew 25 and the sanctuary movement. I'd like for both of you to kind of share with us, what do we do? How do we take action? So there's a lot of things going on, as you may have already heard. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll start with this. In a recent interview with Breitbart, White House advisor Stephen Miller <clears throat> hinted that this summer would be the summer of chaos, he said, on immigration. Wow. So we expect a number of attacks on immigrants and refugees. And we're taking these attacks seriously. And as, as we can recall, Miller is the engineer of the Muslim ban, of the cancellation of DACA. So these are very strong words. Mm-hmm. And a few days ago, uh, Alexia was, was also mentioning Attorney General Jeff Sessions issued a legal decision to make it much harder for anyone fleeing gang and domestic and sexual violence to gain asylum in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So this shuts the door on those seeking protection from domestic abuse in their home countries. Mm-hmm. And the Trump administration is not going to stop, mm-hmm. unfortunately. So asylum seekers will be under the threat of these hateful policies for months to come. And next week, the House is expected to vote on two bills that would deport more people without due process, Mm -hmm. eliminate protection for victims of domestic and gender-based violence, and continue the policy of family separation. So by the time this podcast airs, the vote would have already happened, Mm -hmm. but we are certain that Congress will still have not taken action on DREAMers or immigration reform. Wow, really? Jessica, what's the most important thing? that we do in the next nine months? What can we do, the one thing that we do in the next nine months that will make, that has potential to make the largest difference? So Latinos have to go out and vote. It is Mm -hmm. so important right now Mm -hmm. to go run to the polls, especially if you're a millennial. Mm. We we actually comprise 44% of the Latino electorate. What? 44. And and statistics say that once we register, we are more likely to show up to the polls. So it's important for us to do that. Okay. And I'll just add one little thing. Write to the White House and to Jeff Sessions to speak out against family separation at the border and to support asylum seekers fleeing domestic abuse. Those two things are so important. Well, there you have it. That's exactly what we did when we went to the prayer breakfast. It's not the prayer breakfast. It's the day that we are on Capitol Hill. Yes, that's right. That's right. It fell upon me to represent the group from Georgia. And there were nine people in the group and only one person could speak English. And... I had them speak about what they wanted to say in Spanish, and then I rehearsed them overnight to translate their pieces in English, because they had to be the ones to speak, and I just sort of filled in the gaps and so forth. But I have to tell you that it it was some really rough conversations because they really pushed against the resistance of some of the senators and representatives, and Mm. 
there was some thick belief that you, this really had to be done in order to deter people coming over the border. And I had to remind these folk of the history that we were invited to come in. Hello. When they needed a force of rightless workers, and the same thing with enslavement, they needed a force of rightless workers, and they invited us in. And then I had to remind them that, you know, as we say in Spanish, I said, you know, you're, you have no right then to speak to anyone about human rights because you're just dead men speaking to men who've been hung. Mm. And that hit them hard. I mean, this guy just, you know, his, his eyes rolled, his neck snapped back like, what, what are you saying to me? Wow. So we had to, you know, really, 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 really push and keep on going, pushing and pushing till they at least, you know, you, you try to get little wins, right? Yeah. Little wins, little wins. Mm-hmm. So they at least were able to say that, that they would move on getting the children to be within a certain time and distance from parents. Mm. That was the only thing that they would concede to. Mm, mm, mm. And do we know where the parents are? They're all over the country. Well, that's, uh, literally. I, I don't know if they know. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're taking people in Nevada, I mean, in Texas, moving them to Nevada and the children to Connecticut. Lord have mercy. I yeah. want to talk about the church yeah. in particular yeah. and what our call is at this uh-huh. historic moment. A year ago, we formed Matthew 25, which we are now calling M25, because okay. it is Matthew 25, Mateo 25, and we really see ourselves as a collaboration between immigrant and non-immigrant congregations. Great. Yeah. But it's a, it's a bipartisan, I'm going to say that again, it's a bipartisan Christian network, yeah. because immigration has not historically always been a partisan issue and mm-hmm. does not have to be, mm-hmm. right? That when I... Someone said when I was talking about what this administration is doing, someone in an evangelical gathering said, oh, you're talking like a Democrat. And I said, no, no, I'm talking about what this administration is doing. That's <laughs> right. It's really line. critical to understand that. Yeah. So it's a bipartisan Christian coalition to protect and defend the vulnerable in the name and spirit of Jesus. Because Jesus said in Matthew 25, mm-hmm. whatever you do to the stranger you do to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we come together as immigrant and non-immigrant congregations to educate and to accompany families facing separation through detention and deportation wow. and to advocate for them. And in the process of coming together to advocate, to accompany and advocate for these families, we do end up being motivated to get engaged in larger policy Opportunities as they come up, and right. and to try to to really advocate to stop some of the horrible things that are going on. So more and more people who have never done advocacy because that's not how they've understood their faith, mm-hmm. when they actually get together and do this kind of accompaniment, and it is really important that we're getting together across that line because often immigrant churches don't participate, even though we have members who are fully documented. Mm-hmm. We don't participate because we lack hope. And non-immigrants don't participate because they lack passion. Because, you know, when we run the bipartisan immigration proposals that have been advocated by folks, you get about a 75% support rate. Right. But it doesn't mean that they care enough to call their congressperson. So what is the one institution in our society that's mandated to care passionately about people that are not us? If we don't care passionately about people who are not us, we're not disciples of Jesus Christ. But that passion doesn't happen unless not only you know people who are directly affected, but you trust them. 
It's not enough to encounter each other unless you trust each other. When you engage together in joint mission, then you come to trust each other. Right. And then the people who don't know front hand about this trust the people who do and are telling them the story. Mm-hmm. So in that process, we're creating a coalition where you have the exchange of hope and passion mm-hmm. and where people actually can sustain the kind of advocacy that needs to happen for this to change. Mm-hmm. And we have had some success even in this current chaos we had, you know, it's a fairly famous case of a pastor who had the three qualifying cases that are most typical. We call them blood, sweat, and tears. You know, he's married to a U.S. citizen with U.S. citizen children. He, he's an Assemblies of God pastor, pastoring a thriving church plant in South L.A. He's, that's the sweat category. And he came from Guatemala running for his life as a young person. Oh, wow. And so that's the tears category. But because he has deportation orders from when he was young, working in the fields, when he was a teenager, nobody can consider the qualifying cases until the deportation orders are removed. And it's an immigration judge told me that removing a deportation order is like the 20-year pulling of a wisdom tooth, and it can cost a million dollars. Oh, my god! So anyhow, he was detained wow. under this administration. <clears throat> the former administrations had given him, while this case is going to go through court forever and ever, had given him a stay of removal. This administration detained him in a horrible private detention center and but we were able by advocating and the the head of the assemblies of god dr george wood advocated personally for him and that was a personal i think transformation for dr wood and his ideas and yeah. his perspectives so you know we we're working with individual families but in the process people are moved in other ways that help them to be part of a larger communal effort mm-hmm. And in this work, we are particularly concerned right now about the horror story that's unfolding in Central America and the people who are running for their lives. Our country has a commitment since 1948 to receive people who are suffering unjust, violent persecution in their home countries. Mm -hmm. And we really need to continue to be faithful to that international commitment. Mm -hmm. And the church needs to, to call, to have that moral and spiritual call. That's exactly right. So so how do people get involved in, in M25? How do they do that? So there is a national website. Uh-huh. And I, I'm just trying to remember the exact name of it because it I don't usually use it. I think it's Matthew 25 Pledge, which is a which gives you the opportunity to just stand up and say that I pledge to protect and defend the vulnerable in the name of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. That's the pledge. There it is. But locally, if you want to hear, you know, we're building a model on the ground in Southern California that then we're hoping to replicate around the country. And that's Matthew 25 SoCal. Oh, awesome. Matthew 25 SoCal.com. Dot org. Matthew 25 SoCal.org. Well, thank you, women. Thank you, Latinas. <laughs> thank you. Lisa, what I wanted to say in it, uh, is oh, yeah. that I w- thank you. Uh, I didn't realize how good it would feel for someone to celebrate us being Latinas. <sighs> Y'all are going to be crying. I didn't realize how good that would feel. Realize, ah, oh, that doesn't happen often. Oh, yeah. I know. Oh, my goodness. Thank I'm you. literally tearing up here. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, God bless you. You are my sisters. And, you know, I didn't even say it because I think it's not worth saying and taking up space with this. But my my ancestors, and actually Elizabeth and I did talk about this when we first met. 
um, that my ancestors came to America in the 1930s from Puerto Rico. Oh, um, that explains wow. it. Wow. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And they they were oh, they were. No, I'm serious. They were the original Puerto Ricans in the Bronx. Wow. They were literally they were, they were literally settled in the Bronx in the 1930s, and the big tide didn't come until the 50s and 40s, well, 50s and 60s, right? 40s, 50s, 60s. So they were there like a decade before everybody else. But they were they were Afro Puerto Rican, mm-hmm. and you know we were talking about this originally. They were actually from Caribbean. They were from St. Mm-hmm. Kitts Nevis and Antigua, right? And so they spoke Spanish. They were married in Puerto Rico. I have, I literally have their marriage certificate wow. in Spanish, How right? How about that? So, and pictures of them. And, and so, but I don't lead with that because honestly, I didn't even know that history until mm-hmm. like a decade ago. Mm-hmm. My grandfather did not teach us Spanish. He didn't teach his, his, his kids Spanish. And so it's not something that I, I actually own. Well, it might be enough to be able to call you Madrina then. Oh, my God. <laughs> Take it to be Madrina. Oh, my God. You guys, I'm going to really cry. <laughs> Ma- Madrina and Doña Lisa, I think. Doña, Doña Lisa, Lisa, too. Okay. And that, that makes you our comadre, right? Yeah, comadre. Oh, <laughs> Got lots, oh of, lots of terms of endearment. Yeah. Oh, oh, you guys, I really am going to cry. I feel like yeah. there's like, I'm almost really seriously like a homecoming. Yeah. Mm. And Elizabeth, Lisa. thank you so much for, for jumping on the line today. I know that you really made this work for yourself and for us. And so I want to thank you for that. Thank you. It's been an honor. It was a privilege to be invited and to be and to listen to what everyone had to say and reconnect with you. So it's just it it was wonderful. So thank you so very much. Thank you. We're like totally all tearing up. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Thank you. These are the conversations that leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. This Freedom Road podcast is recorded at the studios for the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. And this episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC, and we consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, just like we did today, and common commitment, and it leads to common action. So that's what we're trying to do here. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us, and stay in the know by signing up for our updates. We promise we will not flood your inboxes, a promise. And we invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around on the first day of each month. So join the conversation on Freedom Road. Freedom Road.